good morning, Grace Gospel Church. I'm very happy to be here with you all this morning and going in through the, the scriptures to learn with you all. Uh, we're in the middle of a series called Thinking Biblically. Now, Satan is the ultimate deceiver whose end goal is for humanity to have a distorted image of truth, to blind people to their need for Christ by making good appear evil and evil appear good. He does so by controlling the world's thoughts, by playing on human emotion, by deception, but it is ultimately all rooted in having humanity ignore the source of truth, which is the Word of God. Therefore, it is important as we go through the series that we let the Bible, which is the source of proper thinking, be our guide to define what good and evil is, uh, what God is, what His holiness means, and what our need is as we uh, just seek to clarify on the lies that the enemy has been spewing into our culture. So that the world may understand good and evil, the biblical God's holiness, and the need for salvation in Christ. And today, we are dealing with this issue. We are going to the Word of God to clarify on this issue of abortion human value in the womb. We are clarifying the truth concerning good and evil regarding abortion. We will show that a poorly thought out Supreme Court decision in 1973 does not define what good and evil is regarding this issue, but God does, and the word of God is the source of truth. Remember Paul's message last week, the government has limits. Legislation cannot be the arbiter of morality, as all sorts of injustices has, have at one point been legal. Look at slavery. Look at interracial marriage. There are all sorts of things that have the law's stamp of approval, yet are wrong. Therefore, the law cannot be the source of morality, and it certainly is not here. We need something deeper. We need something more powerful than nine flawed humans' thoughts regarding this issue. We need the thoughts of the creator of the universe. We need the thoughts of the perfect one. And thankfully, and, and lucky for us, he has shared his thoughts through the scriptures. So we don't have to navigate this issue of abortion just on how we feel. We can look at the truth and see what the Word of God says concerning this matter. And that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to turn and read some relevant verses concerning this topic of abortion this morning. So why don't we all stand up for the reading of God's Word? I will read everything that is uh, in the normal text. And then when you see the red text, we can all read that along together. And we have several selected passages. Uh, so let's start here. Uh, it says, but God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female. 
Then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. From each person I will exact punishment for the life of the individual since the man was his relative. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. A man is the image and glory of of God. No one can tame the tongue. It is restless and evil. With the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, brethren these things ought not to be this way. Let's read this together. Stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world's forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Please remain standing as we go before the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray for your word to speak to us this morning. Lord, that truth would penetrate our hearts and transform us, that you would do a work. Lord, that we know your Holy Spirit is the true teacher. So Lord, bring clarity on this issue that Satan is trying to confuse and let your image shine brightly here this morning. Oh God, have your way in our hearts, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. So, before we actually dig into this, we need to say our purposes for addressing this issue. And that is, again, to shed truth where Satan has caused deception, but it is to offer reconciliation, to offer grace, to offer forgiveness. So I'm going to spend some time talking about how we should treat people who have had, a, had an abortion or performed an abortion before we get into the sinfulness of it. Because if we're just focused on the controversial nature of this topic, friends, we miss the point. This is about letting people know that Jesus loves them and that he's died for them. And God's forgiveness, God's grace needs to be at the forefront of our minds as we navigate this issue the whole point of this message is, yes, to understand sin, to make sure we know what good and evil is, but really to offer grace and forgiveness through the preaching of the scriptures, through the proclamation of the great gospel. This is Grace Gospel Church, and that's what we want to give people, a gospel of grace. We need to keep that in mind. And I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul's own testimony. He's writing Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, and he gives his own testimony. He says, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost. Yet this reason I found mercy. Here's why Paul found mercy. So that in me, as foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. 
Anyone who says abortion is beyond salvation does not understand what the Apostle Paul was saying here in the inspired word. They are rejecting a statement that Paul has clearly said deserves full acceptance. And that statement is that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Paul uses his own story as proof. He says, hey, look at me. You know what I was doing. I am a murderer at heart, which, by the way, is relevant to today's topic. But, but nonetheless, Paul himself, he was a murderer at heart. He sought to persecute and kill Christians who were humans made in God's image. And he says, I have been forgiven. So the Lord may show his patience in me uh, and display his glory through the patience that he had for me. You see, anyone can be saved, including anyone who has had an abortion, including any murderer. Anyone can be saved. So even though today we will call a spade a spade, even though we will use the scriptures to show abortion is murder and therefore sin, understand the reason we call out sin is only to offer grace and forgiveness to those who would hear it. Again, remember our mission. Here's what it says in 2 Corinthians 5. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled, restored us to himself through Christ and gave us, gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That is our mission, to do that begging. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That is our goal. That is our mission, to proclaim reconciliation. That is the goal of this morning as well. Do not let Satan deceive you and so offend you to ignore the end goal and to miss out on the beautiful forgiveness and reconciliation that the Lord has. Again, our battle, we just read it, is not against flesh and blood, but against satanically inspired ideas that our culture uh, has really been given by Satan and, and has been deceived. You see, these people, they are victims to the deception of Satan. Granted, yes, there is responsibility. We believe what we believe, and we are responsible for that. But really, the true enemy, according to Ephesians, is Satan. That is who the struggle is against. So we must recognize the enemy. So with this end goal of reconciliation in mind, knowing Satan is the true deceiver, it is the, the prince of the power of the air who is prompting these things who is involved in these Supreme Court decisions, that really um, there's forgiveness and grace offered to anyone who is, would just call on his name. So keep grace, keep reconciliation at the forefront of your mind. And with that, we can move on. The message, again, is to clarify 
what Satan is trying to do, what he is distorting. He is distorting good and evil, and we need to clarify this morning that abortion is a sin which needs to be repented of. And and if we're going to make that claim, we need to start by defining what a sin is. Sin is missing the mark. That is, means it's something incorrect, impermissible to do, something that ought not be done. It is a moral failure. Fundamentally, abortion is a failing of a moral duty given by the biblical God, which we were required to obey, whether we recognize it or not, and with real consequences if we do not. And this issue of abortion is pressing because it is indeed a real sin with real consequences. And folks need to know that this is a sin so we can repent of it and be reconciled to the Lord. Now, what is it that makes this act of abortion so sinful? Why why shouldn't it be done? Why is it a moral failure? You know, God is not random with his descriptions of good and evil. There's a purpose behind every command and every prohibition. So why then is the moral prohibition, why is there a moral prohibition towards abortion? Well, for starters, it damages ourselves. Though abortion damages humanity emotionally and physically, uh, and I do acknowledge that, and we could spend the whole day talking about that and the damage that it's caused to so many, It's more than that. At its core, abortion is really an attack and an affront against God himself. That is why it is at its core sinful. It is rooted in a battle and a power struggle against the Lord himself. Abortion at its core is an attack on the Almighty God. And it's an attack in at least two ways that we will see this morning. Abortion is an attack against God's image. And secondly, abortion is an attack against God's ownership. Let's start with this first point. Abortion is an attack against God's image. This is, again, what makes it so evil, what makes it sin. Why it is a failure. It is completely going against God and his image. Let's start with a question. What makes a human a human? Well, scientifically, our DNA, yes. But in its truest spiritual sense, what makes humanity distinct from all other creatures is that we are made in the very image of God. That is why we are special, because we are made in God's image. We see this First at creation, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We are made in the image of God. And it is this image we bear that gives us intrinsic value. That is what it means to have human dignity. You've heard this phrase before. It's tossed around quite a bit politically and what have you. But really, it is rooted in, human dignity is rooted in the image we bear of the Lord. That is why we are dignified. That is why we are valuable. That is what makes us special and distinct from all other 
creation, that we are, in certain respects, a painting of God by God, distinct from God, but a reflection of who he is. We bear his image, and if let me tell you something, if you bear the image of God, who is infinite in power, infinite in grace, infinite in all perfect qualities, then my friend, that would make you infinitely valuable. If you even slightly resemble that. Now why mention all of this on a message on abortion? Well, our image-bearing quality, you see, is the root of which we can properly define murder as murder. Murder is the sixth commandment found in the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. Puts it plainly, you shall not murder. But we get a little more information from Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. God describes laws to Moses and his sons after they've come off the ark. And he, uh, this, this concept of murder comes up. And from this verse, we get an idea of what it is that makes murder so wrong. What makes murder, murder? Verse 6, whoever sheds a man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. God says you are valuable, and therefore there are consequences to ending human life specifically, because human life specifically is stamped with the image of the Lord. According to Genesis chapter 9, murder involves more than just the ending of, a, of any old mere living thing. And we know this inherently just, just by thinking, right? Every, it, there was a big pandemic going around recently. I don't know if you guys heard about it, but we used a lot of sanitizer, didn't we? You know that sanitizer kills a plethora of tiny living germs that are on you? Yet, we're not in our mind associating that with the idea of murder. Or when we go barbecuing, maybe not today because of the rain, but tomorrow in the sun when we're out grilling our dead cows, we're not going to get arrested for murder. Why? No one's rounding up the animals from the animal kingdom, putting them on trial for eating each other in the wild. Why is that the case? Well, you see, innate in our understanding of murder is more than the mere ending of a life. Personhood, specifically rooted in the image of God, whether or not that's a recognized fact, is required for something to truly be considered murder, biblically speaking. Now, as a side note, we are to be good stewards of the animals, and that's an independent issue. But what's crucial to today's message and today's discussion is whether or not abortion, that is the ending of a life of an unborn child in the womb, is murder. Here's a pretty good working definition for this morning of murder. Murder is the intentional and successful attempt of ending the life of a human bearing God's image who is undeserving of such a death. I wouldn't say it's airtight, but it's a pretty good framework to work with as we continue the discussion this morning. And you see, the focal point 
this morning, the premise on which everything stands or falls is an understanding of this following truth. Humanity, including unborn children, are made in the image of God and thus persons of value who are murdered when aborted. If indeed a child in the womb reflects the image of God, then putting an end to that reflection, putting an end to that image bearer without some sort of offense is defined as murder and therefore definitively wrong in a direct assault on God by rejecting the value of his very image stamped on that unborn child. You see, that is at its core why it's wrong. It is a rejection of God's image, not understanding the image of God properly the way, the way it is. Every time an innocent human life is ended, an image bearer is not valued properly. God's own image is not recognized as it should. This is the true offense to God, that he has placed a picture of himself on a human in the womb and that there is intrinsic and inherent value simply based on their humanity, based alone on the stamp of the Creator, and the offense is that this valuable picture of God Himself is tossed aside, and it is not recognized. That is the core offense of abortion. And secular philosophers have tried to remove this important phrase, image of God, and so have replaced it with the more ambiguous term, Person, personhood. And their argument is if an unborn child is not a person, then it is not murder. You see, they've removed the image of God from there to make it easier for them to argue. And after removing the image of God and replacing it with this vague term person, what they seek to do is define personhood themselves with no good guiding principles at all by rejecting the infinite creator who decides what is valuable, who defines all things, and who has stamped his own image on humanity. By rejecting that, they are left with nothing else. And so what have they done? They've said, oh, a person. A person is someone who has ability, someone who is capable of doing something. That's a person. They say the unborn are incapable they're not self-aware, they can't communicate, and so on. And so, they have no value as persons. But you see, human value is not rooted in what we can do or potentially do. True value depends on the kind of thing you are, not what you are capable of. True, I'll say it again, that's important. True value depends on the kind of thing you are, not what you are capable of. And this is obviously true, right? If human value was defined by capabilities, then we can just write off every single disabled individual. Then we can just write off the elderly once they stop being able to take care of themselves. We can write off people who are on temporary comas because they're not doing much. We can write off ourselves while we're asleep 
if this is how we are defining humanity. This type of thinking is a huge, momentous failure. And if it is followed to its logical conclusion, leads to such nonsense. This argument is a special pleading for abortion. It is nothing more than that. Because we know just by thinking that this is not what gives us value. There is something deeper, there is something rooted in our very humanity itself that gives us our value, and that is because God has placed it there in creation. I like the way Dr. Tim Shaw says it. He says, unborn children are not potential persons, they are persons with potential. We value, we have Well, you see, our personhood has little to do with capability and everything to do with the kind of thing that you are. Humans, we we have value just because we reflect God. That alone, that God has declared it, infinite God who defines all things, looks at humans, says, you're in my image, therefore we have value. Nothing more. Now, there's other things that play into it, our moral duties and what have you, but we have human value just based on the fact that God has declared it. And For those who are having a tough time with this, this is an example of what I mean. Here is a beautiful diamond. It's called the Blue Diamond. And it right now, I believe, resides at the Smithsonian uh, Museum. And basically, its function, the purpose that it serves is you look at it. You look at it, right? And it looks good, and people go and visit it. And maybe if someone were were to get and obtain this blue diamond, maybe they would wear it for an aesthetic purpose, or maybe diamonds are the hardest substance, maybe they're cutting something with it, I don't know. Pretty useless overall, doesn't have much ability. Yet, because this is a diamond, and it is a blue diamond, it is worth 300 million US dollars. Okay? Not because it's useful, but because of the type of thing that it is, you see. And likewise, our value comes not from our capabilities. Our value comes from the kind of thing we are. We are humans reflecting God's image. Here's another way to think about this. And this blew me away as I was studying. Jesus is 100% God. Jesus is also 100% human. Therefore, the mere existence of our human DNA gives us distinct value from all other creatures because it is in a very real, in a literal sense, a shared feature between God and man. That, That blew me away. God didn't come in the form of a dog. God didn't come as a cat Because those things don't bear his image. Those things are not valuable. God came as a human. God is 100%. Jesus, 100% God, 100%. Not dog, human. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And friends, God revealed himself through Jesus. And if Jesus shares humanity, Jesus shares human DNA, then therefore, at the very, very least, any single form of unique human DNA is infinitely valuable since God himself has become a human. 
And if value is rooted in this way, related to God's image, related to, to, to Jesus Christ himself, this changes everything. This changes everything. And here is the argument. Here's the argument of genetic science. To many people's surprise, overwhelmingly and without a shadow of doubt, I would say, science indicates that unique human DNA exists from the moment of conception. And the implication here, based off of all we just went through together, is that, therefore, value and special, unique, human, image-bearing quality exists from conception onwards. Meaning, right from the very beginning, they are reflecting God's image, at the very least, through their unique human DNA. Here's how, again, Dr. Tim Shaw, a Christian philosopher, puts it. He says, the embryo, from the earliest stages of development, has the human genetic code, human chromosomes, human DNA, human parents. It has everything it needs to develop into the mature form of the kind of being it already is. All it needs is adequate time, nutrients, and a hospitable place to develop, which, by the way, is what we need outside the womb, too, No. There is a reason why human embryos develop into humans, not dogs, cats, birds, so on and so forth. A human embryo develops into a mature human being because a human embryo is already a human being. And this is not merely scientific. I know some of you guys, oh no, I hope he's not going to show the, the double helix also, We're not going to get too sciencey here, don't worry. The main thing here is actually that the Bible supports this as well. Look at this. It's not merely scientific. It's consistent with the biblical data. What we see in Luke chapter 1, it says, For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb with joy. Now, what is interesting here is the word baby, which in this verse is located in the womb, is the same word. Greek word translating baby when it is located outside of the womb. The same word for baby, infant, or child, anything referring to that young childhood stage, this is the same word. You see, location, and the Bible is affirming this through, through verses like this, location does not make the unborn less human or less of a baby or less of an image bearer. The value scientifically and importantly, biblically, remains the same inside the womb as it does outside of the womb. We also see this implied through texts from Exodus chapter 21, uh, verses 22 through 25. Here is what God's law prescribes under a circumstance where if a child was injured or died due to some type of struggle um, before it was born. Says verse 22, if men struggle with each other and strike a woman with, ch with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet there is no injury to the child, he shall surely be fined a consequence. But if there is any further injury to the child, you shall appoint as a penalty life for life, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Now what is interesting here and what can be, I think, reasonably uh, implied? Remember Genesis 9? <laughs> The killing of a child in the womb 
has the same consequence as the killing of an individual outside of the womb, just like it said in Genesis 9. And we can conclude that the reasoning is also the same because both the person outside of the womb and the person inside of the womb bear the image of God. Therefore, that is why a consequence would be prescribed here. Because that unborn child bears the image of God. That is why God has declared consequence here. If it was just an animal, I'm sure it would not be life for life. I do not think that would be the case. Let's move along. Psalm 139, very popular when we're talking about this issue. Uh, Oh, you know what? I was already there. Psalm 139 also indicates that the being inside the womb is the same exact being outside of the womb. It says, You formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths. Look at this language. The same David, the same individual who wrote Psalm 139 is the same person or human who is undergoing the process of development in the womb. David identifies as the same person. Look at all the times he says, I, you wove who? What's the pronoun that God inspired David to write here? Me. He wanted that personal identification with the being that was in the womb. He does not say, you wove it. He says, you wove me. You made and created me. And that is important, that the Bible here is affirming the being before birth is the same being as the being after birth. Sinful humanity, you see, with abortion, as well as any other form of murder, by the way, has a value problem. We aren't valuing something the way we should. We are throwing away diamonds reflecting God's image and playing with mud. And friends, as a side note, let it be known that if there's value in the womb, then there's value outside of the womb. And you know, for years, the church was the functioning orphanage. Now the state has taken over. It's been pretty interesting turn of events there. As people who recognize the image of God, we need to recognize it in all stages. That means I need to recognize it when I hear that politician speak who I'm not fond of. That means I need to recognize it when that person who's rubbed me or agitated me the wrong way uh, is getting on my nerves again as well. The image of God, if we're making the case to defend children in the womb based off the image of God, we need to care about the image of God all throughout as well, as a side note. And also, too, with these struggling, struggling parents, I'm, I will not deny that people are not struggling and that it's not tough to do. There are Christian organizations uh, to help out. Um, I recommend you looking into it. I think the church should be adopting more personally. Uh, we should be caring for the widow, for the orphan right? I think that that's something to pray and consider as a side note as well. 
But nonetheless, a child is a child in the womb because they have God's image in, in, in their very human nature. You see, that's where their value comes from. Science confirms their humanity, and the Bible confirms their worth. They are the same inside as outside. Here's what it says in James as a closing note with this point. It says, No one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil. With the tongue we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. And from the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not be this way. And if these things, if these cruel words towards an image bearer are wrong biblically, how much more abortion? How much more when we take that image of God and we don't even recognize it, we toss it aside? Most of our problems are, as humanity, getting along with one another and, and, and even a lot of our problems with God, is because we do not recognize the image properly. We have a value problem. And abortion attacks that image, attacks the image of God. But there's another important thing at play here. Abortion is also an attack on God's ownership. And this is related as well. Uh, one common objection that you hear uh, one common objection that you hear, and in fact the basis for the flawed legal framework for abortion is that one has the right to do with one's body what one wants so long as it doesn't harm anyone. And many try to justify abortion with this idea of self-ownership, my choice, uh, my body, my choice. And this is just a failed philosophy. It fails for a few reasons. I won't spend too much time. I had a lot here, but I think I'm going to just pass, pass by some of this for a time. Uh, for, for starters, we just made the case that scientifically that is unique human DNA at conception. If something has unique human DNA, guess what? It's not you. <laughs> it's not you. If it has your unique human DNA and, or your own DNA, you can, you, know, get, you can get tumors removed. There's nothing wrong with that. But if it's unique human DNA, that is not really scientifically you. So that's the first problem. The second problem is we say it doesn't cause harm. Well, for one, it causes harm to the child. But even if you say that's a part of the body, it causes tremendous harm. It's caused tremendous emotional harm that I know anecdotally that I have seen. It's caused tremendous uh, harm to fathers that are often disregarded um, sometimes, and they have an emotional aspect to play, whether or not they're present in the picture. They still deal with some of these repercussions, and it also causes potential harm. Think about these children, who they would be. Maybe they would have a cure for cancer, right? We just don't know. We're not in a position to make such a radical claim like abortion causes no harm to people. But lastly, and most importantly, and this is where we're going to kind of land the plane, no human has absolute authority over oneself anyway. No human has absolute authority over oneself anyway. Think about this in general, too. If I think about it just normally. If I took a saw and started sawing off my arm, that might be legal, I don't know but it certainly is morally reprehensible, right? Smoking, an example of something that is legal, but it is destroying the body, yet we usually recognize it as a moral failure of sorts. 
something wrong that ought not to be done. So just because you think you have control over your body, it doesn't this, you see, it doesn't necessarily follow that just because, uh, it doesn't follow that we have control and authority over ourselves. We can do plenty of things to harm ourselves, and it just doesn't sit right with us. And, and, and why? It's because we do not really own anything. We are stewards of all we have. That's the point. That's the point here. I'm, I'm going to land the plane here that we are stewards. Um, in our mind, we understand that a person does not have absolute authority over themselves, that a mother does not have absolute authority over the unborn child. All of these things belong to someone else. They belong to the Lord. Right? Look at, look at this. God owns everything under heaven and under the earth. It's all his. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all it contains, you have established them. I don't think it's a coincidence here, too, by the way, that he first starts with talking about God owning everything. God owns this. God owns that. And then ties it directly to him establishing or creating those things. Anything God creates, he owns. Just like if you were to take paint and paint a beautiful portrait, who would be the original owner of that portrait? Would be the person who created it. It would be you, right? And same applies to God. God is the original owner. He is merely letting humanity steward things. He is just giving it to you to hold on to. God created all things. He also as we read earlier, created us. And look at where that creation takes place. Let's look at the other pronoun. Instead of saying I, he formed I, uh, uh, or formed me, my inward parts, let's look at who's doing the action. You formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's room. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, skillfully wrought in the depths. You see, the person doing the creation of the child is not the mother, and it is therefore not her property. It is God's property. God is the true owner doing all of the work. It is his to do with as he pleases. It is all the Lord's. And all throughout the, these verses, they were all attributed to God. The psalmist here realizes that mom, though was to be respected, was not to be thanked for creating him. Now, next time any of you young people are in a fight and mom says, I gave you life, don't be throwing this at her and say, oh no, it was the Lord. Not a good time to do that, okay? But at the end of the day, it was the Lord who gave you life. It was the Lord who created you. And that is who is thanked in Psalm 139. God, therefore, owns what is in the womb. No one has the right over that child. Someone was given temporary stewardship over it and must answer to God for that stewardship. But no one is the owner except the Lord himself. Scripture indicates ownership uh, even even further through verses like Mark 12 14 through 17 right Jesus is trying to be trapped here and trying to 
basically get them to oppose, uh, get Jesus to make a statement against the Roman government so they could get him arrested. And here's what they said. They said to Jesus, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? He replied, bring me a denarius. They brought it. He said to them, whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but to God the things that are God's. And you see, while that unborn child might resemble their earthly mother or father, really, more fundamentally, they are made in God's image. Therefore, the true owner is God. If unborn bear God's image, then they are not owned by the mother, and it is not the mother's body or the mother's property, but it is the property of the Lord. This means that when abortion is taking place, it is certainly not less than the throwing out of diamonds reflecting God, but it is actually worse. It is throwing out God's diamonds. They're not even your own. It is his property. And pro-choice position is largely defended through the ideology of rights that women have. The issue is, we all, as humans, ourselves, are not even our own. Sin is largely the mere failure to recognize that truth. And salvation can, in a sense, actually be described as the realization of this truth. It is restoration, it is reconciliation to the Lord, and it is described not as independence from God or his rule, but as being a slave to righteousness, being owned by God, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, recognizing you own nothing, and if it appears you have something, it is because the Lord has made you a steward of that thing. You see, it is our lust for independence, our lust for the right to do what we please that ruined the perfect life in the Garden of Eden and set humanity on the path for destruction. Okay? I know we love Independence Day and being independent, but the real reason for sin is because we want to be independent from God. You see, this country had a great history of success, not because we were independent completely, we might have been independent from Britain, but because we were dependent on the Lord. That is what made this country so great. And it is when we start to get too full of ourselves, when we start to think we're entitled to things, when we start to think things are ours that aren't, that is when trouble starts to brew. It is our lust for independence, our lust for our rights. Give me what is due me. That is what has ruined humanity. There is no right to choice in this matter because that child belongs to the Lord. It is an illusion of a right by a failed Supreme Court who will stand before God by how they, with how they have governed. It's no one's right to, to end an innocent human life who bears God's image and is thus God's property. To claim so Friends, it's a delusion of independence in which, despite your lack of recognition, will be accountable. Look, I'm not going to stand here and tell you it's going to be easy. I will not tell you that there are no emotional considerations or struggles. I'm not telling you that the pain isn't real. But I will tell you this, what logically and necessarily flows 
If this biblical God is real, and if unborn bears God's image and was created by God and owned by God, is that we simply do not have the right to decide to end that life. And if you think you do, that is the core of the sin. You, my friend, are in a power struggle with God. And it will not end well. No matter what it is, it's God's property. His image. Abortion is nothing less than an attack against God's image and his ownership. It is questioning the creator and struggling against him. And here's what it says in scripture. Isaiah 29, 16. You turn things around. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? What, uh, can what is made say to its maker, he did not make me, or what is formed, say to him who formed it, he has no understanding. That is what is taking place when we abort our children. We are questioning the maker. These are obviously rhetorical questions in the scripture with an answer of no. Man is constantly trying to deny God what is due him. And they want it for themselves. But it is God who owns these things. It is God who makes the call. And it is this struggle, this lust to be like God, that is the definition of sin. And with sin, with this tension and battle against God, there are consequences. One can claim a right all they want, but what they are actually doing is quarreling with the Almighty. And here is what it says when, happens when we quarrel with God. It says, Woe to the one who quarrels with his Maker. An earthenware vessel among the vessels of earth. Will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? Or the thing you are making say, he has no hands. A woe. That is the opposite of a, a blessing. It's a cursing. A woe. Consequence. There is going to be something, a consequence for you arguing and questioning the maker. And in the end... Abortion is a declaration of war. It is an ultimate quarrel against God. And the war will not be won by you. There will be justice. God will not tolerate his image being destroyed. He will not tolerate his property being stolen. Here are consequences for murder. He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. If you steal what is God's, if you spit in his image, it requires something from you. Numbers 35, 17, if he, is, if he struck him down and as a result he died, he is a murderer and murderers shall be put to death. These are the prescribed consequences for not upholding the image of the Lord. The consequence is death. But friends, there is good news because if you are hearing my voice, that means he is patiently enduring. He is not bringing the hammer down on you because he has already brought it down on someone else. Christ took that consequence, took the punishment that you deserved for, for tarnishing his image and hung on a cross for you so that you might repent. Again, remember our end goal, reconciliation. The Lord wants you. He wants to be at peace with you. God 
granted repentance. Remember Paul in his testimony in, in 1 Timothy, God granted repentance to even Paul who sought to kill Christians. And he can grant the same repentance for you and raise you up and, and allow you just to be used for his glory. You can have a new life in Christ. Friends, hear me. We're not here to judge you. In fact, we can't. I'm incapable of judging you, really. God alone judges. But God doesn't even want judgment. He wants a relationship with you. He is patient, it says in Scripture, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Repentance that is change in about face, a changing of your mind, turning from your wickedness. Stop warring with God. Stop quarreling with him. Stop destroying his image. Stop claiming what is not yours. But to say, God, it is yours. It is all yours, including me. I surrender. That's possible today. But it will not always be possible. Do not let your heart be hardened, friends. That's what Satan would want. He would not want nothing more than for you to be so offended by the truth that you turn and walk out of this place and reject the Lord's grace. God wants to forgive you. He's not out to get you because Jesus Christ, he is indeed 100% God and he is 100% human. And because of that, he was able to pay the price for our sins to any who would believe, any at all, even those who have partaken in the sin we have discussed this morning. Abortion attacks God's image. Abortion also attacks God's ownership. But also understand that there is forgiveness for these things, friends. Are you thinking biblically about abortion? I hope you are. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you for your truth. We pray that it penetrates our hearts, that it transforms us, Lord, that we leave this place really valuing your image. Oh, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And if we're doing that, naturally we're going to love the image. So Lord, we pray that we would love one another, that you would do that work in us, Lord, and allow us to value you as you ought to be valued and to give you what is due you. We worship you and we praise you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.